go. Gordon Woods, thank you very much for doing this. I very much appreciate you uh, appearing on uh, on my show. It's a, a relatively new show, so uh, very happy that you agreed to do this. No, you're welcome, and good luck going forward. Thank you very much. So I've got a copy of your book oh, here, yeah. um, Being Put Through Hoops. And I have to admit, um, I'm about halfway through it. And the reason for that is that it's not a book that um, and it kind of may sound a little bit weird, but it's not a book that I was looking forward to reading or am enjoying reading. So I can only imagine what it is like, what it was like to have written uh, the book. So first off, I just want to commend you on your your courage and your bravery in, in putting that to paper. Um, so thank you for that. It's, uh, it's a story that needs to be told. And um, again, I just commend you on that. So why don't we just start back at the beginning and um, tell us a little bit about how you had the, uh, and this is not a strong enough word, uh, the misfortune of becoming involved uh, with Celtic Boys Club and, of course, Jim Torbett. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, 13 years of age, Scott, and I was invited to trials at the Celtic Football Club's uh, training ground, which is called Battlefield. And <clears throat> to be perfectly honest, um, I had no expectations because up until that point, I hadn't been particularly good at football or soccer. And I was commonly known as a substitute player, a sub player, or a bench player. And what that meant was that there was a, the starting 11 were picked and I was on the bench, possibly to be used as a substitute. Now, that, that was the extent of my uh, ability. But so I, I didn't hold up great expectations because at that time, Celtic Football Club had just won the most coveted trophy in European football. The European Cup. The European Cup. Now the Champions League. Exactly, yeah. Now, Celtic um, in 1967 were the first club, the first British club to win that trophy. And at the point of me joining the Celtic Boys Club, they were in fact European champions. So I didn't hold up any expectations for success. Um, but for some reasons, which become evident in the book, I was selected for the Boys Club. I would say at this point, it was not because of my footballing ability. It was for far more sinister reasons that I was um, successful in gaining a place within the boys' club. And, um, you know, it was a, a move that for 50 years I wish I'd never taken. Mm -hmm. So at that time, it seems like you had, even at that age you had the awareness of thinking wait a minute i'm not a football star mm -hmm. why you know but you still have that dream in your head of course because when when an official from the celtic boys club who as far as i'm concerned were wholly associated with celtic football club when the European champions at that time give you an opportunity 
any 13-year-old boy has it in the back of their mind, they can see something that the others couldn't. Mm-hmm. The, boys, the boys' club teams that I had before that, the school teams, boys' brigade teams, you know, youth teams, where I was the sub-player, Celtic Football Club, is, in my mind, had saw something in me that they hadn't seen. And it was my firm belief at 13 years of age that they were going to make me a superstar. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, well, this, like you said, these are the European champions. Yes. They must know something yes, of about, about the game. Yes, of course. And, yes, and, um, yeah, and as, a, as a, I played hockey as, as a kid, which is – you know, obviously the, the sport here in Canada. And I'm thinking back to when I'm 13, if an NHL scout had said, hey, you know, you've got something, I would have been over the moon about it, even though I know in my heart I wasn't that good of a player. Yeah. Them saying that would have kept that flickering flame alive, you know, yeah, for my dreams. You're of the opinion that even although at that point I hadn't been successful, these were European champions who were going to make me successful because they had the knowledge in um, football that they were going to make me, uh, as I said before, a superstar. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, it, they, yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so in the book, you say that originally when you had your tryout, you were told that you weren't going to make the cut. Yeah. And then someone came along and said, no, don't worry about it. Stick around. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. On the evening itself, um, I can't remember exactly, but the trial was probably lasted an hour or two. And after the, the event where we were being monitored by several uh, Celtic Boys Club officials in a, you know, a skill capacity, we were being assessed. And when that came to a conclusion and we had returned to the changing facility, the changing rooms, um, to change to go home, um, a Celtic Boys Club official came up to the group of trialists Again, I can't remember exactly, Scott, but there might be a dozen or 20 young boys who all had that dream. And there was no allowance made for the mental capacity or the, the, the mental state of those children. You were talking about 12, 13, 14 year old boys who had a dream. And this official was very cut when he just said, You've been successful. You haven't been selected. You haven't been selected. You've been successful. You haven't been selected. And those children who he pointed to and said, you haven't been selected, it must have been, I mean, I know in my part, it was destroyed me momentarily, but I didn't have the expectation of success. So it wasn't so bad. Mm -hmm. Those other kids who did have an expectation, for them to be cast aside in that way, should have been an indication to me that night how that football club treated children. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was told I was unsuccessful and accepted that and started to change, to go home. And 
the friend of mine who had invited me to go to the trials had came up to me and said, look, Jim Torbett is taking us home. Now, Jim Torbett wasn't involved in the actual selection of the children. Um, that was done by uh, coaches. And at that point, Jim Torbett had very little, if any, experience in football, which we'll maybe cover later. The man had no experience in football, and yet here he was being allowed to found a boys' club in the name of the European champions. You know, looking back on it now, as I do, it was a ludicrous situation. Mm -hmm. But that man was allowed to do so, not because of his footballing ability. It is my belief to this day that that man was given the opportunity to start the boys' club because he was a paedophile. That was a prerequisite, I think, of founding the boys' club. This was an opportunity for this organisation to bring young boys under their control. And I can't see any way past that. Anyway, as we were going home, uh, Jim Torbett and this other young lad and myself were driven home. The young lad and I stayed or lived very close to one another within 50 yards of 100 yards of one another. And the car stopped and the young lad got out and I get out and Jim, Jim Torbett get out. And Jim Torbett was the founder of the club. But as I said, not involved in the selection process. And as I turned to leave, he got a hold of my shoulder and he gave my shoulder a squeeze and he said, ignore that, Gordon. Uh, I'd like to see you come back to training next week. And to me, that was a... a a huge relief and again I'm thinking this guy this Mr. Torbett sees something in me mm -hmm. that other people don't see mm -hmm. and listen it doesn't matter how ridiculous that sounds when you're 13 years of age you believe it when, when football is your oh, yeah, everything around football when you're that stage is emotional and you as a 11, 12, 13 years old, you, you strive to get into bigger teams and uh, you train hard. And these are things that <clears throat> these pedophiles who seem to or seem to have congregated around Celtic Football Club, they use that dream that children have to do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. Well, there have been uh, similar scandals revolving around hockey here. Yes. It's the same thing. It's young young teenage players fighting for their dream, and hockey yeah. is everything to them, and, and they get put in a position where they are vulnerable to predators like that. Um, I, mean, so, it, 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 I think it was in America, not Canada, the Penn State. Yeah, that's the U.S. Yeah. Right. Now, Penn State, that organization, that university, were hauled over the coals and they were punished to such a degree, deservedly. And Penn State dwarfs. It is a, it's a dwarf when you consider the two cases. I mean, I think they had one pedophile convicted. As we speak today, 
Celtic have had nine. Nine paedophiles have been convicted of operating within Celtic Football Club or Celtic Boys Club. Now, of course, you've got a situation where a paedophile could perhaps infiltrate into an organisation and until he or she is discovered, um, they may get away with some things and, you know, until they're discovered and then they're thrown out. But there was a time within Celtic Boys Club, um, I can't give you the exact dates, but I can get them for you. There was a, a time, a period of five or six years, where seven of those paedophiles, seven of the nine, were involved with the Boys Club at the same time. Wow. That is not an infiltration. That is a paedophile ring. And Penn State is a dwarf compared to what has happened here in Scotland uh, with the Celtic football organization. So there's a lot of different directions just that I want to go based on what you just said. So maybe we can just for a brief moment explain to people, I know um, hopefully people in Scotland will watch this, um, yeah. but for people here that sort of don't understand the structure of football, because here hockey, um, as a teenager, you're drafted to a junior hockey team. And then when you hit 18 years of old years of age, if you're good enough, then you're drafted into the National Hockey League. Doesn't quite work that way in European football. Um, because as far as I understand, basically as a child, you are brought into a Celtic or a Rangers or a Liverpool, and you progress through the age groups of that particular club as long as you make it. Yes. So, um, and again, as far as I know, there are teams involved with those big football clubs where the kids are eight, seven, eight years old. Is that is that correct? Yes, it is. And they can't sign any <clears throat> contracts, of course, um, but they can be involved within the club. In fact, I think Celtic Boys Club um, not initially, um, but after a few years, they had an under-10 team. So it was under-10, under-11, under-12, right up to under-18s. So you can imagine the volume of children who were going through that club at the time. And my heart goes out to them all because it seems to have came to light that I was possibly the first child to be abused by Jim Torbett at Celtic Boys Club. There is no connection to anyone prior to that. So in my trial with Jim Torbett, as a matter of fact, he actually stated in court that in the time he was with the Boys Club, 3,000 children had passed through the club. Wow. My heart goes out to a percentage of those 3,000 children because I can assure you a lot of them were abused. So how many um, how many people such as yourself, um, you've mentioned around 3,000, you know, possibly involved. How many have come forward to tell their uh, story? At the moment, there's been, as I said, nine 
convictions of paedophiles. Now, that nine have been convicted of just over 300 children. Wow. But as the case, of, and not just in, in child abuse in football, this applies to child abuse everywhere and anywhere. It's very difficult for a child to come forward. And the longer that reluctance to come forward continues, it becomes more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, um, Celtic Football Club are involved in a civil action where I believe it's now 30 children, adults now, of course, but 30 mm -hmm. adults who, were, who allege they were abused as children at the boys' club um, are taking Celtic to court because up until now, Celtic have refused to accept any responsibility. They have refused to apologise to victims. They have attempted in every single way possible to delay, um, obfuscate, deny anything at all, despite an avalanche of evidence showing the contrary. So this Supreme Court action has been in the, in the um, process now for several years, but we're expecting that to come to a head in October of this year when the Supreme Court judge, which is the highest court in the land in Scotland, the Supreme Court judge will make a determination whether or not Celtic were vicariously liable for the protection of their children when they played under their banner. Well, the argument, and again, I'm sort of, uh, you know, I'm a football fan. I follow, you know, football fairly closely. But as to this this story, I'm kind of a just come, you know, just learning about it more and more. Um, but their argument seems quite frankly ridiculous that there is no link between Celtic Football Club and Celtic Boys Club when it's in the name. The badge is basically the same. Uh, how, I don't even know how to ask this question, but how can they have the gall to make such an argument that the two are not linked or were I not really linked? I really don't know. Um, I, you know, it's just, as a victim and as someone who knew the setup, um, it, it beggars belief how they've got the audacity and I've said in other inter interviews, it's an insult to the judicial system in Scotland that they're even allowed to use that as an excuse. Because you have to remember, um, Scott, these 30 children who are involved in this class action, it took a tremendous amount of courage for them to come forward mm -hmm. and to say, me too. And for the action to commence, they had to tell their story over and over and over again. And what Celtic Football Club are doing 
they're mocking those victims. They're mocking them. And as I have said many, many times, every single time Celtic Football Club deny their responsibility, they are abusing their victims over and over again. It has mm -hmm. to stop. The abuse has to stop. Mm -hmm. So you said you mentioned um, around 1967-68. Um, according to your best knowledge or estimate, how long did this go on? To the late 90s. It went on wow. for 30 years. Wow. Um, you see, at the time I was with Celtic Boys Club, I was there for one year. <coughs> Excuse me. No problem. Now, in that one year, I knew of one pedophile and I knew of two victims. Multiply that by nine pedophiles over 30 to 40 years. That is frightening. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the purpose of coming forward, I mean, there was a Scottish MP, believe this or not, a Scottish Member of Parliament issued a statement just days ago where he called out the victims for seeking revenge. <coughs> John Mason. We're not seeking revenge, Mr. Mason. We're seeking justice and responsibility and accountability. That's what we're seeking. So <coughs> the volume of abuse is so hard to estimate, but I reckon you're talking maybe five, 600 victims. Excuse me. <coughs> Take a drink. Yeah, no problem. I suffer from COPD. I cough. Oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. So... That was I, the fact that you mentioned that MP is interesting because that was kind of going to be my next question. What do you think is behind? Because you would think, you know, 30 years of a pedophile ring operating at one of the biggest football clubs in not only in Scotland, <coughs> but in Europe. Yeah. And there's no inquiry, there's no. What, what do you think is behind, why is there such a lack of appetite for this to, for justice to be served in this case? Well, prior to the last 20 years, there was very little done on the scandal. There was nobody coming forward. It was only in 1998 when the first victims came forward. And around about 2005, the governing party in Scotland is the Scottish Nationalist Party, who are seeking independence from the UK. Now, the SNP um, have had tremendous success in the, the polls and in the <coughs> elections. But the vast majority of their voting people, <coughs> excuse me, 
are the Irish Catholic vote in the central belt of Scotland. When you have a situation where Celtic Football Club are renowned to have been and still are uh, Catholic associated, uh, related to Ireland, the SNP, I believe, and there's been several newspaper interviews on this, I believe the SNP are trying to cover this up as much as anyone else because they're putting their core vote before the victims because they feel that if they were to do anything to hold Celtic to account, it could well affect their votes. And sadly, that is the opinion of many of the, the victims of that club. And from what little I know about Scottish politics at the moment, um, they are not in any position to alienate any of their supporters currently. Well, even more so in the last 12 months because um, there has been oh, so many scandals with the Scottish National Party which just came to light. There's uh, millions upon millions of pounds have disappeared. Um, more recently, the ex-First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, and her husband, and the SNP Treasurer have been arrested and questioned regarding missing funds. And that's, that inquiry is still ongoing. So, <coughs> Scottish politics at the moment is a very bad place. <laughs> Canadian politics too. <laughs> yeah. I think politics in general is a pretty bad place right now. Um, so let's circle back. Um, so you mentioned that the car ride home, you were told, don't worry about it, come back next week, which obviously at the time for you was, you know, good news something you wanted to hear. When, what was the moment where things <laughs> went um, terribly wrong in the in this? Yeah, the, the time scale, I'm not sure about, Scott, but certainly um, I, of course, progressed to going to training every week. And for some obscure reason, uh, Mr. Torbett, Jim Torbett, uh, had offered me to take me home after training, um, which he did several times without incident. I didn't know at that point where Jim Torbett himself lived. I assumed it was maybe living nearby and it was easy for him to drop me off. And that continued for several weeks, maybe a month or two, until one particular um, occasion where I had had quite a horrific experience at home um, where I think in too much detail but my father had attacked a family member and I defended that family member with my father and physically restrained him and um, that played on my mind that whole week and then uh, after the training the following Thursday, I told Jim Torbett what happened, and I was very upset and because 
prior to that, I had problems at home anyway. But prior to that, Jim Torbett had become uh, a very good listener. And when I was getting taken home at night, he would, you know, encourage me to talk about my school and my family life. And he was a good listener and gave me advice. And um, he was, uh, he became a friend, not just a football coach. He befriended me and uh, I think nowadays they call it grooming. Mm -hmm. I was in a very emotional state. And as we arrived at my home, where I lived in, in Glasgow, um, there was a approach, an approach to my house, maybe about 100 yards, 150 yards. There was no buildings. It was just a, a row of trees and bushes. And, and Jim Torbett used to stop there and have a wee chat with me before I went into the house. And this particular night, he did the same. And I was uh, very emotional. I was crying. And that was the first time where Jim Torbett sexually abused me in the car. And as I left the car after the abuse, as I was leaving the car, Torbett grabbed my leg, my right leg, as I was trying to get out the car. And he made a statement where he said, don't worry, Gordon, I won't tell your mum and dad what you've done. Now, at that point in time, I appreciated that at 13 years of age, this was this man who had become my friend telling me that what had just happened was between him and I, and he wouldn't tell my mum and dad. Now, at that time, I believed he was doing the best for me. Mm -hmm. But what he was doing was ensuring my silence. Mm -hmm. Because he was warning me, albeit in a a roundabout way, he was warning me that should I speak up, there's going to be consequences. Mm -hmm. And those consequences would be my mother and father finding out. And then he went on to say, because if your mum and dad find out, they'll stop you coming to the boys' club. There was consequence number two. If I was to open my mouth, my dream of anything to do with Celtic would cease immediately. So this is uh, an, a man who, within seconds of abusing a child sexually, threatened made that sure, made sure of the, the child knew to keep his mouth shut and the consequences that could be there if he didn't keep his mouth shut. And um, that's how they operate. And I firmly believe to this day, 55 years later, they operate in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the manipulation in that is, uh, is yeah, for sure. So, Putting the act of abuse aside for a moment, what's it like in that moment for you when this person that you thought was a friend, a confidant, um, is you think is helping you achieve your dreams, and all of a sudden you realize 
that's not what's going on at all. That And considering that you said you had problems at home to begin with, what is that moment like when that confidant, that friend, reveals himself for what he really is? It's very confusing for a child, you know, because <clears throat> a 13-year-old in 1967, nothing, nothing like a 13-year-old in 2023. Mm -hmm. The naivety of children in those days was off the scale. At that moment in time, thinking back and what was going through a 13-year-old's mind at that time was, is this the price you have to pay for, for success? Mm -hmm. Is this normal? Did the European Cup winning team, Celtic, they're called the Lisbon Lions because they won the European Cup in Lisbon. Did the Lisbon Lions have to go through this too? I mean, these are the ridiculous things that are going through your head. But remember, you're a very naive 13-year-old. At the point of the abuse itself, there's a fear. You know, you're, you're frightened. Mm -hmm. Because what hasn't been really highlighted um, at that time, Scott, in 1967, that was a year or two after the most prolific um, murder cases in United Kingdom, where Myra, Myra Hindley, I think it was Ian Brady, were kidnapping children, sexually abusing them, murdering them, and then burying them in the moors. And they were called the moors murderers. Now, there were several children murdered at that time. And of course, it was in all the newspapers, all the news reports, television, everywhere. And here, a 13-year-old boy is in a position where I'm be, being sexually abused. So the, the images that could conjure up in your head are so unrealistic, but they're there. Mm -hmm. And you're also thinking, if I speak up, am I going to be murdered? So the, the fear that these people instill... Sorry. It's okay. The fear these people instill into children is only there for one purpose, and that's to serve their disgusting habits. They know the more that child is frightened, the more likely they are to comply. Mm -hmm. That's their operation. And they're evil, evil individuals. Let's move forward a little bit. Um, who was, so obviously you kept the secret. Do you, who was the first person that you were able to confide in about what had happened to you? The first person I semi-confided in was 1998. 
Wow. It was 30 years later. Because I was, again, very naively under the impression that I was a victim, but I was the only one. I didn't know of anything else happening. And, of course, when I left the boys' club, within a few months of that, I ran away from home. Um, I was away for over a year. I spent some time in Canada. I travelled across the south of Canada from Montreal to Vancouver by Greyhound bus mostly, some hitchhiking. And then I travelled into America, went down to as far as Santa Monica. And that's where I was discovered and sent back to the UK to my parents. Through that, and then through my later teen life, my early 20s, my 30s, I married, had two children, and had no interest in Celtic, had no interest in soccer. Um, that had gone. I, I didn't want to get involved. Uh, and it was only when I went to visit my mother. Now, at this point, I hadn't seen my mother for eight years because this scenario with running away from home and causing problems and getting involved with police and, you know, very with the skin of my teeth, avoiding a jail sentence when I was 16. Um, I, I, my, uh, my contact with family broke down completely. Mm -hmm. And I very, very seldom, even a telephone call to parents, to siblings, uh, I was on my own. And... I felt that's what was best for me. And that continued for 30 years. And <clears throat> I received a telephone call to say that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer and uh, she was dying. And <clears throat> at that time, uh, I was living in Manchester. I didn't want to live in Scotland. Mm -hmm. I was living in Manchester and I hadn't seen or spoken to my mother in probably six or seven years. So I got her telephone number and I, I called her and very emotional phone call, obviously. And I travelled down to where she was, just as a Colchester in England, mm -hmm. and spent some time with her. And over the next seven or eight months, her health deteriorated. And it came to a point where um, I was with her one night and she literally had days, possibly weeks, possibly days to, to live. And at that time, there was a newspaper article, it was in a room, in a lounge, and she picked it up and showed me it. And it was about Jim Torbett. And Jim Torbett had just been convicted of abusing three children in 1967. So my mother said to me, did anything happen to you when you were at the boys' club? You'll understand, Scott, my mother was dying of cancer. There's no way. After I had kept this quiet for 30 years, not just to protect myself, it was also to protect my mother, my father, my, my siblings, my, my extended family. I didn't want any of them to have any form of guilt or shame as to what I went through and what happened to me. Mm -hmm. So here was my mother on her deathbed asking me to divulge information to her and I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. 
I lied to her, as I'd done often in a lie. I said, no, don't be silly, Mom, nothing happened to me. And she then came out with a statement where she said, Gordon, your dad found a letter that you had written to Jim Torbett in your bedroom. And you'd written in that letter to Jim Torbett to stop hurting you. And I was floored with that because mm -hmm. there was no way out. And all I could say to my mother was, look, mum, there was some things happened. I don't want to talk about it. You don't have to worry about it. Just worry about getting yourself comfortable mm -hmm. and let's not go any further. And that was the first time it had been brought up. And the reason it was in the newspaper down in the south of England is because one of the victims in that case where Jim Torbett was the first time he was convicted was a football player called Alan Brazil. Mm -hmm. And Alan Brazil was a very famous footballer. Um, great Scot Scot we played for Scotland many times. And Ipswich. Now, at that time, the Ipswich papers reported on it because it was Alan Brazil. And that's why my mother had seen it, because Colchester was just, uh, in fact, a lot of my mum's family came from Ipswich. And that was the only reason she had seen the paper, was because she had contacts with Ipswich, and she was living down there. Um, so that became, that, that became a shock to me. And when she told me that she knew um, I managed to deflect that and literally three or four days later my mother passed away. But when she passed away I made a very difficult decision and that was as soon as we had the funeral arrangements completed it was important for me to go and see my father who again I hadn't seen for many years it was important for me to go and see my father and discuss <coughs> that letter with him because I was terrified that my father was feeling some kind of shame. And I wanted to reassure him not to. And that determination was very strong. I needed to do it. I needed to tell somebody. I needed to talk to somebody. That's for the first time since the abuse. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you, you mentioned um, not seeing your family for many years and going to Canada, the U.S. How much of that, because uh, you also mentioned, you know, not the best family life to begin with. How much, how much of that separating yourself from your family was the family issues themselves and how much of it was what you had been through? Or was it, was it just a mishmash of the whole thing? No, it, it was 100% what I'd been through. <clears throat> Listen, when you have family problems, Scott, as I had as a child, mm -hmm. these are problems you have when you're a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old. But every 10, 11, 12-year-old has problems at home, whether there's, you know, their mother not letting them go and play football at the park on a Sunday night or whatever reason it is. Every child goes through that. And although it was it was um, a strong feeling in my mind at that time that this was causing me worry, this was causing me emotional um, problems, <coughs> excuse me, it wasn't. 
<coughs> and as I grew up, and as I got older, <coughs> that's when I realised that all those years and all that problem, those problems I had at home, they were all magnified. They weren't important. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, as I tried to show in the book, there was times when I, I loathed my father and I adored my mother. Mm -hmm. And that, that went on for many years when I was a child. But as you grow up and you mature yourself, it becomes different. You view things differently. And... There was a period of time for a year or two where I actually became very close to my father. Mm -hmm. um, I lost a brother in 1986. My brother died with a heart attack. He was only 39. And through circumstances, I had to get involved with my father at that stage. I had to get involved with him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'd seen him for 10 years up until this. Maybe, maybe 20, I, I can't recall. Certainly <coughs> hadn't <coughs> Certainly hadn't seen him for a long time. And I had to um, spend some time with him. And one of the things we spoke about at that time was my mother and my childhood and how he had behaved during my childhood. And Scott, the explanation he gave me, I was able to accept in its entirety. The explanation he gave me for his behaviour, although I saw his behaviour, I was able to understand that. As an adult, as a child, it horrified me. As an adult, I could understand it. And that opened the door, shall we say, for me to possibly have a relationship with my father. Mm -hmm. But sadly, within... A week or two of my mother dying, and before I'd even had an opportunity to speak to my father, I did speak to him. I just said to him, Dad, when uh, Mum's funeral sorted, I want to come and see you. And he had said, Yeah, of course you can. Um, in the intervening, intervening period, my father took a stroke, and I travelled up from the south of England to Scotland, where he was, to see him in hospital. And he never regained consciousness. He died a few days later. So I never had the opportunity to have that discussion with him. Mm -hmm. And all I wanted to do was relieve him of any pain that he might be suffering. Mm -hmm. Because what I had discovered that even although I had done everything in my power for 30 years to hide what had happened to me from my parents, from my family, it appeared to me they knew the mother and father both knew all along, and um, that had a very, very detrimental um, effect on me. Mm -hmm. so, much, so much so that maybe a month after my father died, um, I was hospitalised for a period of about, I think it was three or four weeks, um, because I couldn't find it difficult to accept known about it. Mm -hmm. When was the moment for you that you decided to fight for justice, not just for yourself, obviously, but for every victim? There was there a moment where you meant you kind of mentioned with your mom 
um, and being able to kind of share what had happened. Was that the moment for you or did that moment come down the road where you just said, I can't stay silent anymore? Long time down the road, Scott, because as I said, when mom and dad dying under those circumstances, um, I ended up in hospital and um, I was seriously trying to take my own life. And when I was released from the hospital three or four weeks later, I knew in my, within myself, I knew that I had to block all that out again because it had been opened up to me, not by my choice, but it had been reopened. Everything that happened had been brought to the front of my mind again, whereas prior to that, it was locked away in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. It was in a cage, it was locked, and nobody ever went there. But I had to do that again. And it was in the next 20 years, there were times when I thought, I wonder if coming forward would help. And then I always talked myself out of it because at that time I was running a successful business. Uh, I was doing well in a nice house, beautiful family. And I didn't want that to be disturbed in any way. Mm-hmm. So I kept quiet. And it was another. 20 years, until 2018, when I inadvertently opened a newspaper and there was an article about Jim Torbett. So whereas I had normally avoided any of that reports, Mm -hmm. I read it. And that report absolutely sickened me. I don't want to go into details on it, but it was about a young lad who Torbett abused. And Torbett just been convicted again of abusing him. It was in 2018. And that made me think again, should I be coming forward? Uh, a year or two prior to that, I'd taken a heart attack. Um, my health, my, my, I've got a lung condition, which you could hear <laughs> uh, is not the best of health with that. And I began to think, if I am going to go forward, I've got to go and I've got to do it now. And I won't have an opportunity to do it. And again, I read, I think it was Jim Torbett's um, sentencing with that, previous, that last conviction. He was sentenced to six years. And I thought about it, about coming forward. But what actually was the key to open that was my 10-year-old daughter came in from school and she was upset. And I had received an email from school to say, Brianna's been upset today. And I sat her down and I said, why are you upset? And it was a, sing- a simple thing. She had had a problem at school, whereas her best friend at school had a problem with another girl. And my daughter had taken the other girl's side against her best friends. And I said to her, why did you go against your best friend? And she said, Dad, I had to do the right thing. 
with that sentence, I had to do the right thing. There's my daughter. Mm -hmm. And yet, for 50 years, I hadn't done the right thing. Now it was time to do it. And the following day, I picked up the telephone and I called the solicitors who were mentioned in the court case from Torbett. I said, look, I don't want to come forward. I don't want to get involved, but I have information for you that will be useful. And when I gave them that information, I was on the phone for a couple of hours, to be honest. And as expected, what they had to do was go and check everything I had said. Is this possible, what Gordon Woods is telling us actually happened? Is it possible? And I, I know you're going to be speaking to Peter Henderson soon, and Peter Henderson was part of that group at the time. And Peter Henderson went away and checked up on every single thing I had said, every accusation I'd made by going through archives of newspapers, television reports, Celtic View newspapers. And what he did discover after a few days was every single thing I had said bore out. Mm -hmm. And then that was the start of going forward. What's it like all those years later? Um, you said you just randomly opened up a newspaper and there was that article. When you open up a newspaper and you see that name, presumably a, a picture, it must take you right back to yeah. being 13 years old again. Makes you nauseous. Um, and you've got to force yourself to read it. Mm -hmm. You know, and <clears throat> I mean, I, it's very difficult, you know, to put into words what it was, Scott, but <clears throat> what, I, what I had had up until then was a cloud over me with this abuse and everything I, my whole life, 50 years, okay, there's had a lot of problems in that life, you can assure you that we all have, and some of it could never in any way be attributed to what happened at the Boys Club, but many could be. Mm -hmm. Many things that happened to me that I can directly contribute, or attribute, sorry, to what happened to me, a 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy. And when you open the paper and that's there, it's very difficult. One thing I would say is though that victims of the boys club, they're used to that. They're used to that being opened up. Because <coughs> you have to remember, <coughs> as I said earlier, Celtic, a world-famous organisation, millions of supporters throughout the world, always on the television, whether it's if they buy a new player, they sell an old player, they've got a big match on, they're on television, their games are, are televised. So everywhere Playing right you turn, now, I think. Yeah, everywhere you turn, Celtic are in your face, right? Those green and white hoops are in your face. Mm -hmm. So even over a period of years, although I didn't want to read anything about the boys' club scandal, I was constantly being, being bombarded with images 
that would or could have taken me back to that time. Mm -hmm. So you had to learn not to let that get to you. And how I did that, I don't know. I can't advise anyone else how I did that. Mm -hmm. It's over a period of time you build up the resilience to say, that is not going to affect me. I mean, even when you're walking down the street, whether it's in London or Glasgow or Edinburgh or Aberdeen, you've got these guys walking about with Celtic strips on. Yeah. And so, you know, you're in the shop with my daughter and I turn around with the guy with a Celtic strip standing behind me. And that's the strip I used to pull on. Mm -hmm. I used to pull on the hoops of Celtic when I was 13 years of age. And when I see that, that strip, there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and I've got to accept that as part and parcel of the acceptance of what happened to me and the acceptance that regardless of how I want to lock it away, there's always somebody there who's got a key to open it back up again. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to handle that. So when I saw that, pa that paper at Torbett, it didn't have a, a huge effect on me as a, you know, with regards to my own mental health. The effect it did have on me was that that particular article involved a victim who was no longer with us. And that got to me. Mm -hmm. That me not getting justice, that was my choice at that time not to come forward, that this individual had came forward, stated his case, and he had never, he hadn't lived to see Jim Torbett convicted. That got to me, that mm -hmm. upset. And I thought, I've got, now is the time I've got to. And then 24 hours later, my daughter says to me, I had to do the right thing, Dad. It was a culmination of just two or three little things. Yeah. The perfect storm. Exactly. And that's what it was. I will, as I've said before, <coughs> I said in a newspaper article just a few weeks ago, and he got it wrong. What they said in the newspaper article was that if I had known then what I know now, I would never have come forward. And that's not what I said, because it's important that people come forward. What I said was, if I knew now, or sorry, if I knew then what I know now, I might not have waived my anonymity. Mm. That would have came forward. Because mm -hmm. every victim, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but every victim of, of a sexual assault in in UK and Scotland is entitled to anonymity. Yes. Now, when I first came forward, I was anonymous. With the, the lawyers and the police and different people telling me how important my story was and the evidence I could bring to the table was, I was given the option of remaining anonymous and it being anonymous allegations or waiving my anonymity and putting a face to those allegations. And I chose the latter. Mm -hmm. I said, I want everything I say to be taken seriously and listened to. And the best way to do that is to do it openly and honestly. 
But don't get me wrong, Scott, I'm not anybody else who decides to remain anonymous. I respect that 100%. I wouldn't expect anyone to waive their anonymity unless they feel within themselves they have the strength to handle what I've had to handle. Mm -hmm. I maybe wouldn't recommend it, but at least I've been strong enough over the last nearly four years to handle the abuse that's been thrown at me for coming forward. I want to get to that as well. That was something I wanted to ask you about. So what is Gordon Woods today opposed to before you came forward? What effect has that had on your mental health, on your life? Uh, do you feel... Um, do you feel more at ease now than you did? What what is what is your mindset now compared to before you decided to come forward? The, the dark cloud that was over my life for fifty years, that's gone. And Jim Torbett and the Celtic family organization had a control over me for many, many decades. Now they don't. And that has made everything that I have done worthwhile. And what, what I have done, I've, as I said before, I've taught my daughter, who now is 13 years of age. Now I've got a 13-year-old daughter. I've had her as a single father on my own since she was 10 months old. And I taught my daughter a very important lesson when I came forward and I continued with the fight and three and a half years later got the justice. I've taught her a very valuable lesson that despite what people will throw at you, if you're right, speak up. And I hope she carries that for the rest of her life. So yes, I am more at ease. Um, I, I'm, as I say, I'm semi-retired. I started running a small business. Um, but as it stands today, I think that will be closing down in the next month or two. And I'm just looking forward to retirement, spending time with the little one. And um, as I said in the book, learning to breathe again. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you and your daughter taught each other an important yes, lesson. Well, yeah, I mean, my um, daughter's told, taught me so much since, since, I mean, as a baby, um, 10 month old baby in nappies, and she taught me patience. Mm -hmm. She taught me understanding, you know, so many things that I had to change who I was um, to ensure her well-being, mm -hmm. and I, 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 I've done so, I think I've done so successfully, and I attribute that to her. Let's talk a little bit about abuse that you mentioned, which is another thing that I just, I have a very hard time wrapping my head around, and I think most uh, reasonable people would have a hard time with. I understand, you know, football, especially Celtic Rangers is very tribal. Um, but 
for you to receive abuse because of what you have come forward with, to me, that should have nothing to do with football. This is not really a football story at all. No. The, th the strange thing is, the strange thing is, what's called, these people who are giving me abuse is because I have spoke up against their club. Mm -hmm. Now, the mantra um, of Celtic Football Club with regards to this abuse scandal is keep the good name of Celtic clean at all times. That is a quote from the European Cup winning manager, Jock Steen. Keep the good name of Celtic clean at all times. Now, as long as Celtic Football Club deny responsibility, as long as Celtic Football Club see it, the right course of action for them to take is to continually abuse their victims, then of course the supporters are going to do the same. Mm -hmm. They think Gordon Woods is a loudmouth, speaker up against our club, our club deny everything, he's a liar, you know, he's in it for the money, um, he's in it for fame. Jesus Christ, if I wanted to be famous for money, I would do it a different way, I can assure There's you. There's easier ways to become famous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the abuse, I have often said, the minute Celtic Football Club put their hands up and said, we were and are responsible for this, we are sorry, we apologise profusely to anyone who is affected, injured, abused, well, with Celtic as a family, we apologise and let the matter rest. Until they do that, they are inciting their football fans mm -hmm. to abuse the victims further. Mm -hmm. I saw a I saw a reply to one of your tweets that basically accused you of writing the book for money. Yeah, and I thought, first off, you self published it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're not uh, getting rich off of this, no. and. Even even if you even if you do make a few quid off of it, that's not the point. No, see the thing is that that was one. In fact, if you look at um, uh, Amazon, there's a review on Amazon where someone says Gordon Lewis should not be get, accepting publish, publishers' money um, for writing a story because it's all bullshit, it's all lies, right? First of all, I didn't accept publishers' money. I've borne the cost of launching that book entirely on my own. Now, this will please some of the Celtic fans. Um, what I would have to do just to break even is to sell 1,500 books. I would have to sell 1,500 books. The month since the book's been launched, I have sold just under 400. Mm -hmm. Now, when the book launches is when it's going to have a surge of purchases. But I was well aware, Scott, when I wrote the book, I was well aware that it wasn't the kind of book that people would purchase for a, a leisurely read. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's not a very nice book to read if, if um, you're at all squeamish. <clears throat> but what was important is to get the story across. And what was important, if someone reads my story and sees how determination, perseverance, and um, honesty and truth can get you the justice that you deserve, which I have now done, if that book helps another one, two, or half a dozen people to make the decision to come forward and speak out and remove their own cloud, because they've all got clouds over them, if they can speak out and remove that cloud, by God, every penny I paid on that book would be worth it. What was the process like for you to write that book? Because I know as someone who's reading it, I can do a chapter at a time and I have to put it put it down. Because like you said, the subject matter is not at all pleasant. What was it like to rehash that and get it onto paper for you? Well, you think this, Scott, when I wrote the book, I started the book in 2020. Um, but the reason I, I, I didn't know where I was going to launch it, if I started writing the book in 2020, and I probably did what you've just said. I would write a book, I would write a chapter, and then I'd put it away for a couple of months. Then I'd write another chapter, and I'd put it away for a couple of months. Because I couldn't have written that over a, a, a you know, 60,000 words there. So, I mean, a good author would probably do 60,000 words in six months. Took me nearly four years because, I, I, and of course, there were certain parts of the book, like the toy shop, and it was very difficult to write. But the way I, the way I managed to do that was those chapters, I trained myself, but I put myself in the vic- in the position that not as a victim. This is fictional. Mm. This is fictional. This didn't happen to me. And when I did that, I was able to write. But what I made a what I made a point in doing was once I'd written that chapter and moved on to the next, I did very, very little to change that. What was in my mind at the time I wrote that chapter, I left it the way it was. Okay, I'm going to check changed a couple of spelling mistakes or grammatical errors, whatever. But the body of that chapter remained the same. It never changed. Mm-hmm. And that's still the same today. It never changed. What was in my mind when I wrote the book <coughs> is there, I mean, I know there's some authors who go over their book over and over again and change it and change a whole chapter. In the, no. That book has remained as I wrote it started to write it in 2020 and um you know i didn't expect um a huge response from the book but it wasn't about that it was about someone who is sitting just now having their lives affected by child sexual abuse who are on the brink of getting that cloud off them and coming forward and speaking out. Because you know, Scott, even if you speak out and the authorities consider there's not enough evidence to get a conviction, so you don't get the justice in a court of law, 
that's not important. It's important to speak out because what you're doing is you're taking that cloak off. You're speaking to somebody about it. You're explaining to somebody how you feel. <clears throat> and that's important to be able to rid yourself of that darkness that's been in your life for, in my case, 50 years. But get rid of that. And but if coming forward does that, then that's what the book's about. It's not a book about chastising Celtic or, you know, closing Celtic down. It's nothing to do with that. People think that all the time. I have nothing against the Celtic football team who are on the park today because they had nothing to do with it. What I do have a problem with is the Celtic organisation. And there are directors. There are people who are on the board of directors in Celtic today. They were also on the board of directors in 1967. Hmm. They've got questions to answer. And they will answer them. We've talked about the past. We've talked about the present. Let's talk a little bit before we sign off about the future. So where, where do things, I know there's another book in the pipeline. Um, I know there's, like you said, the civil suit. So what does the immediate future look like in terms of this case and in terms of yourself? Um, talk a little bit as well about the upcoming book, um, just, just to sort of let us know where things are going. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, Celtic are still in complete denial that this had nothing to do with them. They were two separate organisations and they should not be held accountable. Um, uh, there has been, as you, uh, as you may be aware, the, the civil case started several years ago, actually, the class action, and it has been two years in the process with um, preliminary hearings and trial, um, trial hearings and different things going on, and certainly have done everything in their power to delay it. Um, but they've done their best, but it hasn't worked. And in October this year, it will be heard by the Supreme Court in Edinburgh, and they will make a decision. And if they find that Celtic are vicariously liable for the abuse of the children while under their control, under their care, then their name will be blackened for a very, very long time to come. The next book I'm thinking of, uh, I'm, I'm sort of working on it at the moment, but Being Put Through Hoops was a story about me and my family and how it affected them, how it affected me. Um, it's nothing to do really with the, with the club. But the book which I'm proposing um, will co not concentrate on me at all. It's nothing to do with me. It's about what Celtic have done to cover this up for 50 years. Because you have to remember there were, there were pedophiles who operated at Celtic, Jim Torbett, Frank Kearney, who were both found to be abusing children whilst they were at Celtic Boys Club. They were both thrown out of Celtic Boys Club. And several years later, both were allowed back in. And after they were brought back in, that would have been, uh, I think, the late 70s. 
they went on to abuse children for another 20 years. Celtic employed, it was a, Celtic opened a new boys club called Celtic Boys Club East. Now, Celtic that I opened that as well, of course, you know, but they funded the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But the person they appointed to run Celtic Boys Club East was a gentleman, sorry, <laughs> was an animal called Neil Strachan. Celtic appointed him knowing that he already had a conviction for child abuse. Neil Strachan went on to be a prolific paedophile, one of the worst paedophiles in Scotland, and he is currently serving life in prison. Celtic employed him knowing he had a conviction. So going forward, um, there's a lot still to be determined. There's a lot still to be spoken about. There is an avalanche of information that the public don't know about. Um, there's so much that it's it's one of these things that fact is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. No one would believe this was allowed to happen. No one would believe that this happened at an organisation with a worldwide reputation, but it did. Mm-hmm. And People have asked me, do you think it's still going on? I don't know. What I do know is pedophiles haven't gone away. Mm-hmm. They're still there and they'll always be there. And young Until kids they're... young kids still dream of playing for Celtic. Yes, of course. Now, Celtic did, put, uh, because the SFA had a report for um Celtic were ordered to put in child safety measures. In fact, sorry, all clubs were told to put in child safety measures. And Celtic did that, I don't know, four or five years ago. In May of this year, Mark McCauley, who was associated with Celtic, has just been jailed for, I think it was 18 months, for abusing several boys. He was associated with Celtic. So even after they put in the safeguarding methods that they were ordered to do, another paedophile has came to light, been convicted, and has been jailed. There's so and, much to answer to. And you just mentioned, um, just to clarify for the audience that might not know, the SFA is the Scottish Football Association, the governing body of football in Scotland. Yeah, you see, the Scottish government were, were running a, a child abuse inquiry in Scotland. Um, it was costing tens of millions of pounds. But for some uh, reason, um, the Scottish government exempted religious organisations and sporting organisations from that report, which obviously meant the Celtic Football Club and the Roman Catholic Church would be exempt from that inquiry. But what they did do is they appointed the SFA, Scottish Football Association, to have their own inquiry. And that took some three years to be produced. And you've never read a bigger load of rubbish in your life 
bearing in mind that the SFA, they have their own abuse scandal where Scottish referees have been a, a, accused of allegedly abusing children. Oh, wow. I did not know oh, that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Stevenson, the referee called Stevenson. But here we have a scenario where an organisation who has its own questions to answer is in control of this inquiry. It was a, and you know, what became very evident in the inquiry was that everything everything was done to spread the paedophilia in Scottish grassroots football between all the clubs, all the clubs were mentioned. But none of those clubs mentioned have one convicted paedophile. Celtic at the time of the SFA inquiry was produced. They had five convicted. They now have nine. But when that inquiry was released, they had five convicted. That wasn't mentioned in the report. Hmm. So, as far as I'm concerned, the Scottish Football Association are keeping the good name of Celtic clean at all times. Mm -hmm. So tell people where they can uh, buy the book. I know I got it uh, from Amazon. Um, is that the best place to? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. It's available in 18 countries. Um, uh, I, I don't know the, the costing. It's, it's, it's available in paperback. It's available in hardback. If you're with Amazon Prime um, the, and have Kindle Unlimited, then it's free. You can read the book free. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no reason not to read it if you have a situation where I, I'm not going to say child abuse interests you. That, that That's the wrong terminology. But if you have a reason to want to know more about child abuse um, and its effects and how you what victims can do to help themselves, then to me the book's important. Mm -hmm, very much so. So I'm going to show it again. Being put through hoops. Go get it. It's a tough read, but it's an important read. Uh, I'm just going to say once again, before I let you go, um, I applaud your your courage and your conviction in coming forward again, not just for yourself, but for all the victims. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you talking to me about this today. And, uh, you know, Maybe we can talk again uh, down the road when the new book comes out and and we'll go through that one too. Yeah, after the civil action in Celtic. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Thank, thank you for your time, Scott, because it was important, especially with my history of being in Canada for that six or seven months when I, I ran away from home. I was in Canada. And, and I must say that, and I, I mentioned in the book, um, the time I was in Canada, I, I was treated magnificently. Mm -hmm. um, by all Canadians, and um, it was a joy to be there. So I appreciate the Canadians for that time I was in Canada many years ago. Well, I will accept that on behalf of my uh, fellow countrymen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Gordon. Take care. And you. Thank you, Zane.